Welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join me this week. It's been a few weeks since I've uploaded. I apologize for the break there, but as you might have guessed, it has been a busy time with school. It's the end of the semester, end of the academic year, and I was busy away getting my papers together, reading for them, researching, writing them, and now I'm in the process of submitting the final one. I have it all edited, nearly done, just waiting to submit it. So here I am coming at you for a quick episode. Before I get into the episode, I want to just briefly mention, uh, now that we're in April of 2021, it has been a year of me and of you being involved in Christian's Colloquy. And I plan on having an update episode too, uh, soon where I review the year as it's gone by, the first year of doing uh, these shows and discuss plans for the future, the what the second year will look like and what other projects I have going on. But before releasing that episode and really thinking about those things, I just just wanted to now say thank you. Thank you to everyone who watches or listens to Christian's Colloquy, who likes my videos, who shares them, who uh, reaches out to me with comments and questions. Really, honestly, thank you. This channel would not be what it is if it were not for you. I love making the videos. I love researching for them. I love putting them together. But I love that they're also being enjoyed by you, that you're appreciating them, that you're taking the time to discuss the content, to do further research on the content. That's really what it's all about, this channel large part of it, perhaps the most important part of it, is to get you interested in church history itself, to get you reading the people, the Christians of the past, to learn from them so that we can learn and grow together here today. So thank you to everyone listening or watching. I am very grateful for what this channel has become, and I look forward to seeing what it will become as we continue to grow in the future. Anyway, update episode coming out soon. Looking forward to that. But today we have a plan and that plan is to continue the congregationalism series. A lot of you have mentioned that you've really been enjoying the series and as I expected and I'm glad to see worked out as we've gone through the series looking at John Cotton and talking about Baptistic congregationalism today. There have been a lot of questions generated. I planned on having a, a Q&A episode but as I realized getting those questions in a lot of people had a lot of questions, so uh, I figured in addition to streamlining some of the questions, a lot of people had similar questions, and I took the liberty of uh, grouping some of them together into broader points just to make it uh, easier to answer. In addition to streamlining them down to six, I'm also going to split them up into two episodes. Today, we will discuss the first three questions, and then in the next episode, I will continue and get to the, the latter three questions. And hopefully, that will be easier for you in terms of time and being able to listen to it. But also, in terms of, for me, it is a lot of talking, it is a lot of thinking. So I appreciate uh, splitting it and being able to look at generally two different things. Today, uh, we will be focused, generally speaking, at least two out of the three questions are on on offices and terms we use to speak of church offices. Uh, and then in the second episode, two out of the three questions are really on sort of alternate history. What would have congregationalism look like in this era of church history? How would have congregationalism uh, sort of helped or been uh, a crutch in this part of history? So some questions like that, important stuff, but just two different directions. So I thought this was a natural split. Anyway, that's a long intro. Here we go. The first question that people had was, why not have 
bishops? Why not have bishops? That's a pretty good question. It's something that has come up quite a bit as we study congregationalism. As mentioned in previous episodes, I won't go on about it again. Uh, Congregationalists practice the autonomy of the local church, which means that there is no bishop governing a group of churches in a region. There is no single figure who controls a diocese of local churches who have to answer to them or who are under the authority of an individual in a higher office above the local church. And the question is, why don't Baptists practice this? Why not have a figure like a bishop? There are two ways to answer this, but first I'm going to sort of cheekily, but also technically, truly speaking, answer by saying, in fact, Baptists do have bishops, just not in the way we commonly use the term today. And this gets at why we don't have this office today. To sort of explain uh, how, how do Baptists have bishops, why am I saying that, is because if you look at historic Baptist documents, like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, that great 17th century document of the particular Baptist, one that many Baptists will still use directly or really rely on today to formulate our new uh, or updated statements of faith, they quite explicitly reference bishops as an office of Baptistic Congregationalist churches. Here's what the Second London has to say on the local church, that's chapter 26, paragraph 8. A particular church, gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And the officers, appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so-called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of the ordinances and execution of power or duty which he entrusts to them or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. I read through that quickly, but the key point that it's being highlighted here is that there are officers of the church and there are two of them. The first one is bishops or elders and the second one is deacons. Deacons, as we discussed previously, are that are those helpers of the church. You can think about them as officers of uh, sort of day-to-day ministry. In scripture, we see how they are in charge, the deacons, of taking care of the widows or the orphans of the church. And they really come alongside as helpers, as servants. And then we also see in scripture, there are elders. And elders uh, have quite a multifaceted role. We'll often think of them as preachers and teachers, but they are that office that exercises pastoral authority. They are the overseers. And that's where we begin to see that in referring to this office of teaching, of authority, of ruling in the church, it can have multiple different names. We'll often call them pastors or elders. And historically speaking, not as common today, an appropriate title for this office is bishop. So, as we conceive of Baptist elders or Baptist pastors, we recognize that Baptist elders or pastors in congregationalist churches, whatever denomination really, they are technically properly referred to as either pastors, shepherds, elders, or as bishops, overseers. And that, of course, gets into language and all the biblical texts that we're working with. But I thought I would highlight, for those who are sort of skeptical, how can we say that uh, bishops or overseers, as it's written in scripture, episcopal, episcopoi, 
in the Greek, and elders, presbyters, presbyterioi, how can they be viewed synonymously? How can they be seen as interchangeable names? Well, there's a lot of texts in scripture we can look at. I'll have an article down below that really unpacks how in the pastoral epistles, think of Timothy and Titus, that the requirements and the qualifications and the duties of the two terms, overseer and elder, uh, the bishop and the presbyter are overlapping and interchangeable, but I thought I would highlight one in particular. And to do that, I would turn to Acts 20. In Acts 20, we see the apostle calling together the elders of the church, and we see that in Acts 20, 17. And it reads, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So the apostle in Acts 20 is calling the elders, and you can see the Greek term there. We'll read that in English as the presbyters. They are being called before him. The elders are being called before him. And as you read on during the speech from the apostle to the elders of the church, it goes on to say in Acts 20, 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So as the apostle calls the elders to himself to hear what he has to say, he references them. He speaks to them as being made overseers. And in the Greek, overseers is episkopos. Episcopal in English, which translates to bishop. It's a transliteration of that Greek term. So there's a lot of language there. It is a bit confusing. And of course, Greek, I, I had to study Greek. I did uh, three semesters of it and I still struggle with the pronunciation. So I will leave that there. But essentially in this speech in Acts, we could see how elders and overseers, which we transliterate and translate as bishops today, are the same group of people different titles for the same office so why not have bishops well properly speaking baptist congregationalists we do have bishops but we understand that bishops are the same office as elders and pastors not a higher office so the question naturally becomes, so we can understand Baptists want to stick with scripture. So that's why we don't have a bishop as a higher office. Why then are bishops often viewed as a higher office? Why are bishops often presented as an office above the church? How did that start? Where did that come from? Well, to get into that would be a whole big discussion. I did a paper on that in seminary for one of my final papers in church history. But to briefly summarize, it was a development that was born out of the natural issues of the church. As division arose, as the church needed unifying figures, the church fathers, a number of them, believed that it would be best to have a strong central bishop figure. And that was a thought that progressed on and on until we have today. If you track through the history, you can look through Ignatius's writings. There's a bit of skepticism whether Ignatius actually wrote them, but assuming they're from that time, we can see how uh, the bishop became a special way of referring to what we might view as a senior pastor in a local church today. That continues on through Irenaeus, who really references the bishop as a unifying figure as he combats various heretics in his Against Heresies book. 
Then, as you move on to Cyprian of Carthage, we see that the bishop becomes a central figure in the life of the church, that the church is in many ways identified with the rule of the bishop and perhaps even over a group of churches. And that's all to say that Baptists, in, seek, in speaking of bishops as members of the local church, as elders in the local church, a plurality of them, is seeking to stick with how scripture presents the term and the office. While many other Christians from other denominations are allowing for the general development of this office through church history. And that's something that you could see many historians recognize. For example, the, the Roman Catholic historians Alan Brent in his book Ignatius of Antioch and Francis Sullivan in his book From Apostles to Bishops, they recognize that the office of a bishop above a group of local churches, what we'll often call a monarchical bishop, that was a development through time. It's not something we see in the earliest writings. Francis Sullivan states it's not something we see in the Didache, for example. Uh, Alan Brent is careful to show that this was something Ignatius pioneered and was actually opposed by other churches for and uh, because of, but they will concede, these Roman Catholic historians, theologians, that bishops were a development. They just believe it was a good and proper development, while Baptists and other Congregationalists choose to stick with how scripture uses and presents the term. So why not have bishops? In one way, we say, well, Congregationalists, certainly Baptists, we do have bishops, but they are the same office, just a different title for elders slash pastors. And why not have a higher office of bishop? Well, as Congregationalists, we're seeking to follow what the Word of God says about church government and polity. Uh, most of us believe that Scripture offers uh, what is the proper polity. It's not a matter of choosing whatever is most prudent. Therefore, we will not have an office of above the local church, which we believe scripture presents as an autonomous body. Anyway, I hope that answers the question uh, to uh, the man who asked it. Uh, I know who it is. It's a friend on Discord. So thank you for asking it. It's a great question. Anyway, that's why we don't have bishops. It's not how scripture uses the term as a higher office. And that higher office was a development of the early church, which we don't believe reflects what the word of God teaches for polity. Anyway, moving on from there, a second question about titles, terms, and offices. Uh, it comes in as reading this. Why not have priests? So as I just said, when we think of that, uh, that office of teaching and of pastoral authority, Baptists will speak of typically pastors and elders and historically bishops. So why don't we have priests? Here's another question in terms of titles where I think we need to clarify the use of terms. So... What do we mean by priest? Well, if you mean priest in the term of the priesthood of all believers, uh, we as Baptistic Congregationalists or Congregationalists at large, we certainly have priests. We believe we have priests. We believe that all believers are technically priests. And to look at that, to prove that, we'll go to 1 Peter 2.9, which picks up on this Old Testament theme, and it reads, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So technically we do have priests in the sense that believers, the church as a fulfillment of old covenant Israel, as 
truly a prophetic body prophesied in the Old Testament, we are the nation of priests. Every believer in a particular way, in a certain way, really recovered during the Reformation, is a priest of God, a servant of God, uh, a servant of God who brings forth the truth of Jesus Christ to the world, standing on behalf of God before the world, declaring the excellencies of Jesus Christ. So, in one way, we do have priests. But of course, I know exactly what the person meant. Why don't we have priest figures as commonly thought of today, like we see in Anglican churches or in Roman Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches? Don't worry, I understand where your question is going, just unpacking it a little bit. So the second way to answer that is by thinking about what the term priest actually means. Down below, you'll find an article from an Anglican uh, group, the Church Society, Evangelical Anglicans in England, and they will actually describe that priest is just a translation of the word presbyter. So when Anglicans, at least in this reformed evangelical spectrum of Anglicanism, when they say the term priest, they believe they are just using an English word or a developed word for the term presbyter. So while Baptists will use the term presbyter, but say elder, the biblical word being presbyter, but we say elder, Anglicans will view that same relationship as seeing the biblical word presbyter and believing that it's rightly called priest. So here we could see that when Anglicans, at least many of them, when they think of priests, they're not thinking in terms of Roman Catholic priest or Old Testament priest or pagan priest or whatever you might have. They're thinking in terms of priest as elder slash pastor. So again, that's another way where words can change. There's different views on words. If you're interested in that view of the word priest, I suggest you check out down below that article. And in that sense, we could say, well, then Baptists technically do have priests. If presbyter is rightly transliterated or transcribed or translated as the word priest, then we have that. We have presbyters. We have elders. And maybe priest is just another way of speaking of that title or uh, the right way of speaking of that term. I don't know, but I'm not quite convinced. I think there are a lot of issues there, of course, but that is technically a way Baptists do have priests, if priest means presbyter. The final thing is, of course, uh, why don't we have priests? The person who asked this question is probably asking, why don't we have a sacramental or sacrificial priesthood like the Roman Catholic Church has? A priesthood that is distinguished heavily by its ordination, which uh, stands in front of the congregation by power of its ordination and was addressed by terms of uh, in persona Christi or alter Christus and all these other terms that speak to the power and the high purpose of this hierarchical priesthood. Well, that's a question that gets more into theology and I would encourage further study. Why don't ha Baptists have this priest or why don't have Congregationalists have priests in this sense. Well, that's because we believe we don't need and we're not called to have a sacramental priesthood. That when uh, pastors or elders are administering the Lord's Supper, this is where the, the question really comes in. We don't believe that the person presiding over the Lord's Supper is offering up a propitiatory sacrifice. That what we're doing in the Lord's Supper is not a sacrificial mass. And the question is basically, why don't Baptists or Congregationalists practice the sacrificial mass? Why don't we believe that what we're offering up during the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice of Jesus Christ's body and blood? And of course, there's all sorts of discussions within the realm of Eucharistic sacrifice, but essentially, 
Baptists, at least, in terms of Congregationalists. Maybe other denominations do believe this. I haven't heard of a Congregationalist denomination that believes in Eucharistic sacrifice in this sense. But essentially, the reason why Baptists don't have priests in the Roman Catholic sense is that we do not believe that the Lord's Supper is a propitiatory sacrifice the sacrifice of the mass. We reject that theology and therefore do not have priests in that sense. But we have priests in the sense of the priesthood of all believers. And if priest is another way of speaking of presbyter, of elder, then that would be fine too. And we might have priests in that sense. Anyway, I hope that answers the question. Why don't we have priests in the sense that you're thinking of? That gets into the deeper theology of what is going on at the Lord's Supper. Is it a propitiatory sacrifice or is it, as Baptists often speak of it, a time of remembrance? Is it primarily a memorial where we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ, remember the death of Jesus Christ, and are nourished spiritually by him? Or is it, in some sense, a sacrifice? That's the answer. Finally, there's a question And this is uh, the bit of the odd one out here, but a fantastic question. When a church is completely autonomous, but can't handle something themselves, how do they find help if they have no overseers above them? This question comes from a Presbyterian friend, and of course, uh, I believe he's coming at it from a Presbyterian uh, view of church government, where if local churches... Uh, run into issues they can't fix by themselves, they quite naturally have the presbytery above them, the standing body of elders in a region which can provide support and provide help. Well, Baptists don't have a presbytery above their churches. What do they do when they run into those issues? Here is where I'm happy to say that Baptists, if we run into this situation where we're not sure what to do in our local church, we have options. And the first option is, we have standing associations. So I know that the question asks, what if the church is completely autonomous? But I think it's important to recognize that completely complete autonomy does not necessarily, and this may be a miscommunication or missing uh, what exactly is meant, but I believe that being truly autonomous does not neglect our responsibility in some senses, but at least a blessing or benefit of having horizontal associations. While we are completely autonomous, we don't answer to anyone above us. We do have horizontal relationships where we choose to work together with like-minded churches. In the case of my church here in Canada, we have FEB, the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches. And if my church were to run into an issue where we can't figure it out on our own, where would we go for help? Well, we have many like-minded churches in our association, in our fellowship, who we could ask for advice for, advice from or support from and hear what they have to say. And frankly, that is a big part of our church life. We have our national conferences coming up soon. We have our provincial association meeting, which I will be attending. We have our regional associations, which meet quite regular, regularly. And I know that my lead pastor regularly meets with pastors in the area in our association whom he speaks with, consults with, hears from. Uh, They have a relationship of giving one another advice and encouragement, and I think that's wonderful and important, and that's the first place where we would go. If a congregationalist church runs into an issue, we can go to our horizontal associations. 
the second place where we could go, and this is more thinking along the lines of what we saw in John Cotton, was John Cotton's articulation of a synod. If churches are running into a major issue, they can establish or call for a synod. And that's when the churches would, in times of special circumstance, in response to a need, would gather together to work through it. So that goes a bit beyond the standing association. And John Cotton suggests that in times of intense need or churches really can't figure out what's going on, they can call a synod, which does have some practical authority to direct the church or to help the church work through uh, a general issue or a specific issue where they need assistance. So in addition to a standing association, congregationalists believing in the autonomy of the local church have the option or historically have considered the option of calling synods, which bring churches together to support local churches in need. The third place where we would go, and this one is a bit controversial in congregationalist circles and Baptist circles, is the reality of parachurch ministries. I know parachurch ministries can have their fair share of problems, and we've seen that in recent times where uh, ministries, their founders and leaders have proved uh, to have major moral failings, which calls their ministry into question. But as it stands now, and I see no reason to neglect this or not acknowledge it, is that there are many wonderful parachurch ministries out there. Nine Marks is one that I've often consulted, and I know many churches often consult. There are other ones where if your church is having a question it can't figure out, if it's facing an issue it can't figure out, if it's facing a problem it can't handle reaching out to various parachurch ministries whether they mostly deal with church government issues if they deal with counseling issues if they deal with theological issues there you will find theologians you will find typically pastors who are involved and accountable to their local churches making available their wisdom their advice to particular local churches in need so how do completely autonomous Baptist churches or Congregationalist churches figure out problems where they need help and uh, they can't figure it out themselves? Where do they turn? Either they have their standing associations, which they're a part of, horizontal relationships, not vertical, where they can get advice and counsel from. Or if they're going with a traditional congregationalism of John Cotton, they can call for a synod of local churches to gather and wield a bit more authority in driving them forward to a solution or to reconciliation or whatever it might be. And there's the practical reality. If we need help, if we don't know where to turn, pastors, elders, church members reach out to parachurch ministries where they have access to other pastors, other theologians who are offering their wisdom, their experience, their advice to help you think through an issue, to help you approach an issue, or perhaps more directly be involved in seeking reconciliation in an issue. And of course, with that last one, that's a place where, as we've seen, we have to exercise an abundance of diligence and uh, discernment, but it is a resource available to Congregationalist churches in those places of need. Anyway, those were the questions today. I hope that you found these answers helpful. I hope that you will check out the resources I mentioned down below. And even though we have all the questions planned out, if you have more, feel free to leave them down below. They might be something I address in the future, reply to in the comments, or we can have a conversation somewhere else. But anyway, I hope that this episode was interesting. I hope that it gives you more cause for study. I hope that it gives you more information about congregationalism. And in closing now, I hope that you will join me again next time on Christian's Colloquy when we look at those next three questions on congregationalism. Anyway, that's it for now. Take care.